Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Boom hits it to deep left. That might send the Yankees to the World Series. Boom, a hero in game seven. Clemens has set a major league record for strikeouts in a game. Derek Jeter with one of the most unbelievable plays you will ever see by a short Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. I want everybody to just stop for a second. Think about whether it's in your life, or your career, who are the people who got you where you are? Whether it's a mentor, someone just showed you the way, just stop for a second and think about one or two people who had an impact on you in, in that way, right? For me, I started my career at the NBC affiliate in Connecticut on September 11th of 2002, and there are two people that I think of first. I think of Kevin Nathan, the sports director at that station who taught me what it meant to work hard. And he taught me how to do TV when I had no idea. And the other one was Jerry Brooks. <laughs> Who's laughing? We want to welcome you to episode eight of Fanbase. A deep dive into the greatest rivalry in sports. We're going to dub this the Jerry Brooks file. Uh, of course, John Seneca along with Brian Shackman here. Our first live episode. Yes, we're in Take person. It's much fun. We're in Jerry's kitchen. We're the room where it happens. This, yeah, the room where it happens. <laughs> I just watched Hamilton last night. So the funny thing is, before we get into so many things, but I do have, you know, John and I worked at NBC Connecticut. It was Channel 30 or WVIT back in the day. There's many names. But I used to remember uh, when I first started, we would do the 6 o'clock news, and then I'd walk down the hallway to the, the hovel that was sports. Underneath the pit, and then Jerry would get his, his little microwave dinner or order out, and then Joanne Nesty, his co-anchor, would get her dinner, and they would sit in the conference room and watch nightly news every single night. And I, I've always wanted to ask you, before we get to sports and the Red Sox and Yankees, and I wanted to ask you so many questions, but like, how did that start, and why, why did you do something like that? Well, it's part of the job. I followed Joanne's lead because I had never been a 6 and 11 anchor before. And, you know, I always respected her work habits because we worked in radio together at WPOP when it was an all-news radio station. So we, we were old friends, but I just admired the way she went about her job. And this is what I do. I watch nightly news. We take bits and pieces from nightly news. And just watching it would give us a, 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 good, a better idea of how we would write those stories for the 11 o'clock news. 
most co-anchors would go this these two directions after the six. Yeah, they they went like this. No, but it's true. I've been in enough places. Yeah, since I know. I, I, that I know. It, it really, but it sets. The and it's true. Now that I think about it, the times I was fortunate enough to actually walk back, like, and be le like leaving, I would be leaving sometimes at like seven o'clock at night, and you guys, I would see you guys eating yeah. dinner tonight. But every it, night. it showed me that that if you if if you care about news, Jerry would maybe like you. <laughs> if you didn't care about news, you had no chance of Jerry liking you. So anyone who does not know who Jerry Brooks is, uh, he and most of you do. But give us a sense. I mean, because you know this this podcast is global. Um, this is the first time I've ever seen Jerry wear something like this. Every time I've seen him, he's always been dressed. Oh, like I know. That's the great thing is that I'm actually a slob. That's great. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your career arc. You know, how you started, you talked about... Uh, well, actually, I started out hoping for sports. And I, I was the sports director at, again, WPOP, the, 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 the news radio station. In Connecticut. In Connecticut, I did uh, UConn basketball on the radio. I had done UMass basketball on the radio on the UMass station. You did the play-by-play? Play? Uh, I did color. From so, all your basketball playing days? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, when I was hooping. Um, <laughs> and the JCC. <laughs> right. But uh, the guy I give credit for, for breaking my Boston accent, and I had a big Boston accent, Pacticana and all that, was Marvin Bonds. Marvin. Marvin Bonds was the you know, star for the Providence, probably at the same time as Ernie DiGregorio. And I just made up my mind I wasn't going to say Marvin Bonds all night. And it came out... Marvin Barnes, but I never went. And that was the beginning of the end of my Boston accent. And I did weekend sports at uh, what is now NBC Connecticut, Channel 30, you know, what they called it at the time. And for $18.50 a night, ESPN came a calling. A night? Yes, a, a night. Uh, ESPN came calling. And... You know, I remember going there and sitting in a chair. What year are we talking? This would be 78, 79. I think they went on in 79, so they might have touched base in 78. And I remember sitting in a trailer in the muddy parking lot in Bristol, and, and they're saying, well, you know, this would be, this would be great, and this is what we're going to do. And, you know, you're young, and you're kind of inexperienced, so we'd be looking at you for the, uh, for the 2 a.m. sports center. But don't forget, that's 11 o'clock on the West Coast. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, eh, I, I don't know. You know. It's like the internet. It's All just sports. a fad. Yeah, really? <laughs> don't, buy, don't buy Microsoft. <laughs> but, you know, the fact of the matter is I wasn't as married to sports as some others. And uh, one thing led to another, and I made a call and, and told him about this. This guy who eventually took my place at Channel 30 for weekend sports, uh, Guy's name was Chris Berman, <laughs> who apparently, uh, you know, was interviewed for the job, and I think he got it. And, did you know, okay. I don't know what happened after that. <laughs> That's amazing. I so hope he did okay. You could have gone to ESPN. Yeah, I could have gone to ESPN probably if, you know, I'd been hired and went through the whole thing. But you know what? I never would have been Chris Berman. You know, I would have been probably just another sports anchor or... You know, who knows? But I was already thinking about segueing over to news. And everything worked out quite nicely for everybody, I think. You know, it's funny. So you came to be a full-time news 
newscaster in terms of the, the doing the main newscast in the late 90s? Yeah, I mean, it, I was a reporter, feature reporter, uh, and then, you know, I, w I was versatile enough to, if there was a sports-related news story, and I'd usually get that. I went to Cuba in January 1980 because the Trinity College basketball team was was the first American basketball team to go to Cuba since 59, I think. And uh, so we went down there and covered that, and that was pretty cool. Because, and that way, that's how sports helped me out in more than one way. I would end up hosting a lot of the UConn basketball specials because uh, Jim Calhoun hated our sports director. So I, I, was, I was thrown into the breach there. Uh, every now and then to do that and you know all the GHOs the Travelers Championships you know we would always anchor from how many of those from, did you do from Cromwell oh my god a lot did a lot I followed me and Fred Nutter followed Phil Mickelson on his final day one year all the way straight in front of him huffing a tripod and everything 95 no, degrees so we oh, called it the Trail of Tears Kevin Nathan wasn't carrying Phil up the hills I think he was back in the trailer <laughs> oh. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin's man crush he, he was he was working sound on 18 Kevin's man crush you know let's let's talk about baseball yeah um you know so where did you grow up well I grew up in Framingham but I was born literally in the shadows of Fenway Park uh, on, on Yaki Way? Uh, not quite on Yaki Way or, or Jersey Street, <laughs> right. as the case may be. But my, my parents were new. I, I, I was born nine months and one day after they got married. And um, their apartment was, you know, a stone's throw from, from Fenway. Huh. Uh, and, uh, you know, eventually I, I grew up in Framingham, Massachusetts. Uh, and... My brother and I would go in, you know, my father would still go into Boston to work. We had, in, in the plumbing business, I flunked out. Um, and we'd go and my father would give both of us five bucks and we'd go take in a day game. And there were plenty of them then. And the thing is, you know, okay, you know. And again, uh, not to date you though, like when? when this when? would be uh, mid-60s. So you could go to Fenway with five bucks and your brother you know, get a you know yes. a bleacher seat or you know a cheap grandstand seat, a coconut dog. But we'd go early and stand outside the players' parking lot and watch the players, you know, drive in or walk in. You know, I remember there was, there was a relief pitcher, a pretty good relief pitcher, uh, John Wyatt, and he'd just walk to the ballpark every day, and you know he'd be handing out you know autographs on the way. But the big moment was when George Scott drove up in a brand new maroon 1966 Olds Toronado. That's like those long, cars, so long, Those right? cars were hot. And they were the first cars with the hidden headlights. And everybody go, Booma! Booma! And you know, he'd, you know. He'd wave. Oh, he'd wave, and he was proud of that car, and everybody, you know, everybody just wanted to drool on it. But, that was really taking in the whole ballpark atmosphere. Right. You know, you have, you know, Yankee Stadium, Fenway Park. You know, they're places that you gravitate to. Right. You know, now they talk about the experience of the game, the in-game experience, right. you know, which is, you know, walk-up music. And have the and, game at the snack shack. Yeah, food <laughs> and all that. Our in-game experience was just, you know, walking a circuitous route from the plumbing shop to Fenway through... A couple of neighborhoods you may not want your kids to walk through these days, but 
you know, we'd just get there and we'd hang and we knew what time, you know, my father closed up shop for the night. So, you know, if we had to leave, you know, an inning before, we, we would. Plus, there were no crowds. Well, I was going to say, how full was the barn? Eight, 10, 12? Thousand. Thousand. There was never a sellout in those days. 67 changed everything. Right. Okay, because I was going to start with 75. But I know you were. <laughs> but it's funny. And I'm like, what happened to 67? Okay. You know, I didn't want to. So, you know, a lot of people out there don't know about the 1967. Cardiac kids. What happened with them? Well, they, they went from worst to first. You know, they had a first-year manager in Dick Williams, who had been a utility player with the Red Sox for a couple of, well, with a lot of teams, but with the Red Sox for a couple of years. And he had a crew cut and, you know, very, you know, he was like a drill sergeant. But that was, you know, George Scott, Mike Andrews, Rico Petroselli, Joe Foy, uh, Tony C., you know, Yaz. You had this really good-looking bunch of kids, and you're thinking, maybe next year. 68 is going to be our year. And it turned out to be 67. Hmm. And it was, you know, a, a Jim Longboard. Pre-skiing. Was that like a one-off, though? Like It turned out to be a one-off. They were pretty good So team. they lost in the World Series? They or lost they make... in the 67 World Series in seven games to the St. Louis Cardinals. And it was a great series. I, I remember in school, it was so big, because the Red Sox hadn't been in a World Series since 1946, when they also lost to the St. Louis Cardinals, when Johnny Pesky allegedly held on to the ball too long and Eno Slaughter scored. But they would roll these big black and white TVs into the classrooms and the school library so we could, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it was junior high. Yeah, Framingham North like High for, School. What the space shuttle was for us. Well, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, we would, they'd let us watch the ball games because it was that big. You know, Jose Santiago pitching on two days rest. And, you know, in the end, they lost in seven games. But we're thinking, this is, this is great. They've turned the corner. This is our team. Because, believe it or not, prior to that, I mean, the Red Sox had been a, a wasteland of a team through the 50s and into the 60s. I think most young people don't realize that, that, that the Red Sox didn't have some huge tradition of no. winning. I mean, Ted Williams retired, and in his last game, the crowd was 10-5. Yeah, it was 10, a big, big, big cloudy, like sort of foggy day. Yeah, I mean, yeah. nobody yeah. came out. And, you know, we used to play... And you're going to love this. We called it Yankees Red Sox in the backyard with a rubber ball because you don't want a regular baseball that would break a window in the backyard. And, you know, we'd run through the lineups and, you know, you'd throw a ground ball and they'd have to complete the play. And we had fences that you could leap up to, you know, grab a fly ball. But, you know, you, we ran through the batting orders. Now, think about this. You guys had, you guys. You youngins. Scourin. Richardson, Kubek, and Cleet Boyer across the infield. Mantle and Maris in the outfield. Throw in uh, uh, Ellie, Ellie Howard and Yogi Berra alternating between catcher and, 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 and left field. I mean, and we had, who the hell played first base? Maybe Dick Stewart for a couple of years. Dr. Strange Glove. <laughs> Big Bat, no, no field. Chuck Schilling, who was a promising second baseman until he wasn't. Eddie Brassoo. Frank Malzone was the one Red Sox player, aside from Yastrzemski, who could have played for the Yankees. 
and we that had was a, it. Yeah, that was it. You know, and Yaz, you know, Yaz was an up and comer then too. But you know, we had nothing. It's crazy. You say could have played for the Yankees. It's like it's like their farm team almost. Like in comparison, no, the Kansas City Athletics were their farm team. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they got Maris and. But what I'm saying is, like, comparison. Oh, yeah, yeah. They were trip. They were maybe double A, to compared to the Yankees in those days. So '67 was huge, and it didn't last. <laughs> so let me ask you though. So look, when did the, you said you played Red Sox Yankees in the backyard? Like, you know, when I project in the decades that I had no experience in, and I look at the history, we talked about this before in earlier episodes. That for us, like Red Sox Yankees, outside of the curse of the Bambino, there was no real rivalry when. The Red Sox were really not up to stuff, but was that the rivalry for you when you were growing uh, up? You were either Red Sox or Yankee fans, and I think it was a little bit of a carryover from football because the Patriots were still new and in the AFL and not really, you know, nothing compared to what they are today, obviously. But a lot of people were still Giants fans. The Giants were the, the Giants were Boston sports teams. Because uh, they, they were sorry. the closest NFL They team. were the closest. It was proximity. And so there were still a ton of Giants fans then. And I think eventually it carried over into baseball. But I don't think, you know, I, I, do you give a dollar to Dan Shaughnessy every time you say Curse of the Bambino? <laughs> I mean, that, but I grew up, I, that's how I grew, I grew up thinking the reason the Red Sox were bad was because they sold Babe Ruth. But what I've learned is that like the rivalry wasn't really a big deal, certainly the Yankees, because they were so much better. Well, there was so. nothing to be rivals over. Right. Yep. I mean, the, the Yankees of the early I loved them, believe it or not. Right. I mean, God, you could, I, and to this day, you know, well, to this day, um, one of my true heroes, because he was a, a Bolshevik of sorts, was Jim Bowden. I was so sad when he died uh, earlier this year, I think, he was 80. He wrote Ball Four, my Bible. I People love that. People say like the best sports book of all. Oh my time. God! No, I'll, I'll take it off the shelf. I've got a first edition copy, and just I'll read a few pages every now and then. Smile, put it back, and I wore number fifty-six on my softball uniforms <laughs> for all those years in his honor. But you know, there was really no competition. I think it. I think Steinbrenner had a lot to do with changing it. With changing that culture. And then, you know, you got Larry Lucchino stepping in when that group bought it and came up with the evil empire. That was more manufactured, I think, than, than but it, Steinbrenner. But it, but it worked? Steinbrenner was authentic, whether you loved him or hated him. But then you got some pretty good Red Sox teams. And I think the two central figures who really touched off the spark were Munson and Fisk. I mean, I what year was... I'd say, I, I'm going mid-70s here, so, you know, we're getting to 75, but they were the... 75, because I was going to say 78, you know. Yeah, and beyond, and, and, but these were two primo catchers. Yeah. And they hated each other. They just did not like each other. And that kind of started, you know, if the fire was just smoldering, it, it was about to break out, especially, I thought, because of those two. You know, and Johnny Bench didn't figure into the equation because he's in the National League. But, you know, I, I think Munson and Fisk had a lot to do with that. And I hated Munson, too, but, God, I almost started crying, you know, the day, you know, he crashed the plane. You know, that was just, that was awful. Um, but, yeah, I, I give a lot of credit to Steinbrenner for, you know, when he signed Reggie. There were a lot of unlikable, a lot of unlikable stuff coming from yeah. New York. 
I mean, Reggie and Billy always fighting in the dugout. Yeah, dog. Reggie and Billy, and you know, we don't do that in Boston, you know. Yeah, 25 cabs for 25 players in Boston. But I think that was when there was more, more resentment than ever uh, from Red Sox fans toward the Yankees. In, in the 60s, in the 50s, I would call it envy. In the 70s, I would call it resentment. Hmm. And of course, you know, 75, it looked like everything was turning around again. Yeah, and then, of course, the 80s, the Yankees we've talked about weren't good, and the Red Sox had their one shot. They both had one shot. They, they were one shot. 67, 75, 86, nothing in the 90s, and then, of course, 2004. You know, we talked about the rivalry, but, like, do you think, like, you know, like, the, how much more, like, the media is involved, too? I mean, that changes everything, too, because it was more like you, you people ran and read box scores back in the day. And then they just sat and they talked to their friend on the porch about it or whoever they came across. But now it just seems in the last 20 years, it's just been so everything's, everything's so microscopic and overblown that it's like, it's almost like the media drives the... Drives the uh... Even before social media, though, what was better in the newsroom than a bunch of us just shooting the breeze about baseball? Yeah. It was and great. It was a great mix of people because in our newsroom, there was also a weirdly unnatural number of Mets fans as well. Yeah. And they demanded to be heard. Why? I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was so much fun. And there's no other sport, including the NFL, that you would just sit and shoot the breeze about. Yeah. I was amazed. Like, I, I talked to Brian about this. He said, you know, when did you f figure out the, about the rivalry? And my answer was when I moved to Connecticut. Because where I grew up in New York, no, mm, one, even, no one even cared about the Red Sox. You know, it was just like they yeah. didn't even talk about them. As soon as I moved to Connecticut, I, was, I had people all over me. I mean, I was at the grocery store yesterday, and I texted Brian. I was like, there's a guy, no joke, that's like probably 75, 80 years old, and just rolled up on me and was like, boo, Yankees, go Red Sox. And I was like... Uh, you had your hat on? I had a hat on and a shirt, and I was like, well, you know, they got to play first, so, you know, well, hopefully yeah, we play I mean, first. I think now people just more acknowledge each other's presence. I mean, if I'm at the golf course and invariably it will happen, I don't always wear my Red Sox cap to play golf, but I see somebody coming at me with a Yankees cap on, I just go, and he goes, and you just keep walking. I, see, you, you don't say anything, not, though. That, not that, necessarily so special now. that I... Yeah. Everywhere I go, I attract someone saying something to me. It, I mean, well, it, it doesn't, you. It doesn't okay. matter. Because, uh, you know, you look like your backside because you're a Yankee yeah. fan. <laughs> no, but I I think, like, I'm thinking I got some special power that I just attract them. But I think your point is a good one, though, because I think that the media with ESPN or whatever, when the Evil Empire thing dropped, when the Red Sox got better, when they played 19 times a year, and to me, when Veritech smacked a-Rod in the face. Like, they played that. And when, when Pedro put Zimmer on the ground, they played it a over million and times and because they need that, right? They need it. And let's face it, Dodgers, Giants, or, you know, Cubs, Cardinals, I'm sorry. It just doesn't have that venom. No, ESPN, Baseball Tonight, the show, yeah. uh, the game of the it used to be the game of the week. Right. Now it was, you know, two or three games a night. <laughs> Whatever night it is. Yeah, really. <laughs> you know, and, there's, and, and you're, you're looking for the marquee matchups. 
And what's more marquee than the, the Yankees and Red Sox? I, and I know you guys mentioned, and I agree, the Giants and Dodgers on the West Coast. Yeah, I mean, depending on how they are. But it's like, you know, you're flipping through, and if, you, if you're not lucky enough to be in this area where you're going to get the Yankees and Red Sox all mm. the time, I mean, it, think if you're a transplant somewhere, you know, like you're out in Houston or something, you're flipping through, and you definitely don't want to watch the Astros because they're cheaters. And <laughs> you're flipping through, and you're like, oh, well, you know, Cubs, Cardinals. Well, I'm like, no. yeah. well, well, I want to watch something good. good. And I think we're really lucky to live here. As baseball fans. Absolutely. But you may have this point that I've sat for my kids because I know people just you're being old and whatever, but like the newsroom conversations, for me, I remember getting up as early as I could to beat my brother to the Globe Sports page in the morning, and I was obsessed with box scores. I was obsessed with... You used to get the sporting with, news to get all of them. Yeah, and so, and like, my, my kids don't have that. And, you know, so I, I feel like there is something missing, and it's not being old school. I love... My kids don't even know what a box score is. Like, if I said, like, what is a... Like, they wouldn't, like, know, like, where to go find it. Like, he, he would know that he went two for three with three right. RBIs, but he wouldn't know. Like, I mean, I'm kind of embarrassed. My kids don't even know how to keep score. Your kids are baseball obsessed, yeah. I would guess, yeah. by being Facebook friends. Yeah. And, and that could be his dad really obsessed that the kids play it. Well, no, but I mean, are they really into yeah, it? And what about your kids? They, but I have one that likes it. Uh, they all love to go, but I only have one who likes it. I don't have that. I really don't. Yeah, I worry about the future of the sport. You know, I, I, uh, they had a big chance this year and blew it. See, I think the same thing. I think, you know, if they, if they didn't squabble, they got yeah. their act together, they could have kicked it off Fourth of July weekend yeah. and it have been the most American thing you've ever seen in your life and they would have owned it. They would have owned months. all of sports. Yeah. Owned it. The you whole know. rest of the summer if you go, hopefully, COVID-free. I mean, they blew it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt about it. I, I, I just always think that we're stupid and we need something so we'll go back. Like, I, I'll still go back to Fenway because I love to go. And I think it's the only place I've thought about this a lot. This is really bad, but I'll say it in this podcast. When you get older, there are fewer ways you can justify like having a few drinks in public. You know what I mean? Like, you know, because when you get to a certain age, they're like, because when you're young, you're like, oh, they're just having fun, and then they're like, whoa, that old guy is drunk. Oh my god! But a baseball game, you can go and no you can drink what. and have fun, it's totally and it's acceptable. like, and there's something about going to Fenway and having a couple and having a good time that. I will go back and pay those prices because I love to go. Well, and I'm the sucker. I am. I still sucker. get a thrill, and I'm sure you do at, uh, at Yankee Stadium, walking up the ramp and getting the first glimpse of the field. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, it, it's so easy for me to flash back to my grandfather taking me to my first game at Fenway, yep. holding my hand and seeing the field and just being in total all. Yeah. I mean, just dumbfounded. It's amazing that like people don't understand like what it's like, it's like, it's, was... like it's a painting. Like it's like looking yeah. at a beautiful painting. He got box seats, which were three dollars. Three bucks. Three bucks. I've, I've covered, covered uh, maybe seven opening days at Fenway and I still, even in my forties, I go on the field and I feel like a kid. You know, and a couple, first couple of times I grab a little dirt and stick it in my body. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. just like, what are you going to do with the dirt? You, you, nothing, but I mean, well, you, you just, that's, that's how you know. I mean, it. I've been, I've, I've covered like, the World Series, I've covered the All Star Games, and it's like, you know, I'm, you know, 28 to 40 years old doing this, and no matter what, every single time I stepped on that field, I felt like I was 15, 14, 12 years old. I felt like I was the, the biggest boy in the world. I was yeah. in awe. And you know, I, I don't care. I mean, you're looking at these guys, they're professional athletes, right? It doesn't matter if he was, if, 
I look at him the same as I looked at Don Mattingly when I was 12. I look at, I look at Derek Jeter the same way. I mean, mm -hmm. these guys are professional athletes. They're the best at what they do. So why not soak it all in? It's, yeah. it's, just, it's just a really cool thing. And, and, and my other enduring memory, and, and again, I come from three generations of plumbers, keep that in mind, uh, was being led to the men's room at Fenway for the first time and seeing a trough. It's the trough, right? <laughs> I looked at my grandfather and I go, is everybody going? And he goes, Go enjoy, boy. Step right up. Step right up, indeed. We did the same thing like two years ago. We were at, I think it was the Hebron or the Durham Fair, and walked in with Jackson, my son, and he looks at me and he's like, What are the experience? And I'm like, It's just, it's just, it's just where you're going. It's part of the experience. It's great. We're talking with Jerry Brooks, who, for John and I, you know, was a very special colleague of ours at NBC. He was a longtime news anchor at the NBC affiliate in Connecticut. Lifelong Red Sox fan. And, you know, before we close it up, though, I kind of want to go back to the specifics of baseball because my, my whole premise is that before 04, especially after 03, even down three games to zero in 04, I felt like I was a loser, like as a sports fan. Like I felt like an absolute total loser. And I just wonder whether it be 86 or 03 with Aaron Boone or 04 down 03, like, as a fan, like, where was your head? Um, in, uh, you know, growing up with those 50s and uh, mid-60s teams. And I should say, the first season I actually remember, the first World Series I remember is 59. So I would have been seven. But, um, you know, 67 changed everything where we saw the possibilities. And they didn't happen, but the Reds, they were better than they were. 75, that was going to be the team that had the run. Yes. Freddie Lynn, yes. Jim Rice, yes. yes. I mean, what a... Dwayne. Oh, yes, he can't leave out Dwight Who, Who should, should be all of I think he should, too. And so should uh, Louis Tant. But... Um, that didn't work out either. No. Uh, that didn't work out. So, okay, 78. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I, I've met... Bill Lee at golf tournaments, and the first time I was introduced to him, you know, he goes, nice to meet you, and I go, you killed my grandmother. <laughs> and he goes, what? <laughs> and I think, you know, Bill Lee's into shock stuff, right. so I just figured, I'll turn the tables, and I go, you killed my grandmother. He goes, what do you mean? She died in 78 after you guys folded. She used to sit and watch every one of your games. She was in seventh heaven when it looked like you were running away with it. Bucky Dent hits the damn homer. She was dead in two weeks. You killed her. <laughs> he just didn't know. He didn't know what to say. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. That but, was amazing. So that was that was pretty cool. And I've met him again, and he's 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 a pretty cool guy. Um, Eighty six was the one year that just sucked. I mean, they it had, just they had sucked. I, I, I was at work at uh, Channel 3, the CBS station in, in Connecticut. Uh, and Doing news, not sports. Uh, doing right? news. And I remember the only ones left in the newsroom were me and um, the director, Bobby Provost. And it happened. We never said a word to each other. I picked up a typewriter and shot-putted it. And we both just walked out of the newsroom. 
That was it. Conversely, in 2004, it felt like a warm bath. You know, everybody... Did you really think, like, because Brian, Brian, like, lost all hope. Like, his wife still had hope. But he oh, when, the, when the Red Sox were down to the Yankees? Yeah. When they lost game three, a game I attended, I've said it, it was the worst sporting event I've ever been to. And that was a lopsided score, wasn't it? Was like it? Seven, yeah. One of them was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, and that's, it was game three. And we were at a restaurant in Rocky Hill that night with my wife's uh, uh, niece and nephew, and they were a bunch of Yankee fans in the bar, and we walked into the bar to get some drinks, and... They recognized me and knew I was a Red Sox fan, so that was a long, long night. But no, I didn't expect them to come back that way. But the night, I did not see the end of um, the last game of the World Series live. I knew they were going to win. We finished the 11 o'clock news. I said to Joanne, uh, I'm going to listen to the rest of it in the car. I'm going to listen to the radio. Joe Castiglione. And I'm not a huge Joe Castig fan, but, you know, I mean, there are other, you know, I grew up with Kurt Gowdy and Ned Martin and and Ken Coleman. Uh, You know, I I like Joe well enough, but he's the voice I did want to hear. And I also wanted to call my mother as soon as the game was over. Because she grew up a Red Sox fan. She was in nursing school. She'd take breaks and go over to Fenway Park and watch a game or two. She was still awake? She was up? Yeah, that night. That night. And, you know, I just said, just wanted to share a moment with you. You can go to bed now. And she goes, boy, we waited a long time. And I said, yep. And then Joanne called. And, um, you know, she said, congratulations. I just wanted to hear, I'll let you go back to the radio. Congratulations. And then I came home. My wife offered the same congratulations and I just stood here and and watched the TV for about for as long as anybody was on the air and again it felt like a warm bath I didn't even need a drink and you, you go on to win the World Series but I mean in your opinion is that almost even bigger that win against the Yankees I mean you get your first World Series in 86 years I think but the World Series was a fait accompli we knew it was going to happen yeah yeah everybody knew it was going to yeah. happen and it's weird because you know you get that intense Yankees Red Sox rivalry and after the Red Sox won that World Series, we were in Puerto Vallarta. And we ironically had a table next to a couple from St. Louis. And, you know, we were just, we didn't know them, but, you know, chit-chat. And they said, you know, so where are you from? He goes, St. Louis. And I went, I'm a Boston boy. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, you're welcome. And he goes, can't begrudge you. You deserved it. And those Cardinals fans are everything I ever heard they were. They were so damn nice. And I'm thinking to myself, well, they're sure as hell not Yankee fans. Well, you you know, before we say goodbye, I would just say that moment, like the Cardinals, I feel like there's two things that I think about. One is it's almost like Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate when he gets the girl, he's in the back of the bus, (laughs) and he's like, what the flip do I do now? You're like, I mean, what are Boston fans, what are they... We won, so all right. Part of our de- as great as it is, part of your identity is it's now gone. gone. Yeah, and you know I've thoroughly enjoyed 2007, 13, 18 as well. You know I'm done. I'm good. Yeah. You know I'm glad the and this season, I have yet to get excited. I have to admit. Um, yeah. You know I'm just so annoyed with how they have gone about this. Beautiful. Episode eight, the Jerry Brooks file. <laughs> 
Jerry Brooks, thanks for joining us here on Fanbase, a deep dive. Well, it was a pleasure to be here. Good luck with future episodes, and it's great to see you guys again. Great to see you too, Jerry. Check us out online in uh, Apple Podcasts, Google, uh, iHeartRadio, and we'll see you at the next episode. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.